The book of Hebrews is one of the most challenging, substantial books in the New Testament. There are a few things that we think are helpful to keep in mind as we engage with the author's message. First, while we don't know for sure who wrote it, we learn early on that he had a first-hand relationship with Jesus' disciples. So the author's message is based on Jesus' teachings. Second, even though we don't know exactly who he's writing to, the intense and deep connection to Old Testament stories about Abraham and Moses and the discussion of covenants and roles of priests and sacrifices suggests that the original audience had a working knowledge of Jewish customs and beliefs. Moreover, the content of the letter suggests that they had left these old ways behind to follow Jesus. Third, as a result of following Jesus, they faced social pressure and hostility from their Jewish community and also found themselves outside of the broader community and culture. In a collective society, being isolated and alone or in a small group without much support put them in a vulnerable position. Facing intense pressure, many of them were starting to revert back to their Jewish practices and traditions. Some had already abandoned Jesus completely and others were drifting in that direction. More than a letter, the author writes a sermon that bounces back and forth between explaining certain ideas and encouraging those reading to keep going, to keep following Jesus. The encouragement takes different forms, including some intense and scary warnings. But through it all, the author reminds them, and us, that Jesus is superior in every way and worth following. It's a clear and compelling vision for following Jesus that we're excited to, to explore with you in this series. Well, in the, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at uh, many times and in various ways. But in these last days, God has spoken to us through his son, whom he made heir of all things and through whom also he created the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being sustaining all things by his, by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the Almighty in, in heaven. So he has become so superior to the angels as much as the name he has received is superior to theirs. It's with those words that the writer of this letter to the Hebrews begins this kind of beautiful and in some ways kind of hard to understand book. But I believe that as we go through this series during these five weeks, we're going to really grow in our understanding and our appreciation of Jesus and who he is and what he has done. So, so the author begins by talking about the fact that God communicates to us. He says he did it in past for our ancestors through the prophets. And when he says the prophets, it doesn't mean just those people. That's sort of shorthand for, for the Old Testament or for these Jewish Christians. It would have been the Torah. That God began this process of communicating who he was. Through Moses, he, 
communicated about his law, his commandments, how we can live a life that, that is pleasing to God and that works for us, how we can be involved in, in worshiping God in that time through the sacrificial system. Through the prophet Hosea, Hosea married a woman who left him and became a prostitute, and God told Hosea to take her back and to love her and forgive her. God painted this beautiful picture of what his relationship with us is like, that we also have been unfaithful to God, and yet he calls us back and continues to love and forgive us. It'd be the, the Old Testament prophet Isaiah who had this amazing vision of God high and lifted up in the temple. And we see God in his glory with, the, with these angelic beings crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We learn about him. He's communicating through, through Jonah, this prophet that God sent to Nineveh, to a totally godless pagan people, to let them know that God's love extended all the way to them. So in the past, the writer says, God communicated to us in all of these various ways at times through history. But he says now, now he's communicated to us through his son. It's probably not as easy for God to communicate to us as we might think at first. I mean, God is so up there, out there, and we're so down here. It'd be like, how would you communicate, say, with an earthworm? You know, it'd be pretty tough, wouldn't it? How does God communicate with us? Well, the writer says the ultimate communication of God to us is through his son. In fact, the disciple John in the gospel that he wrote, the account of Jesus' life, he begins, begins by saying, in the beginning was, remember, the word, the word by which we communicate. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Jesus is the way by which God is now communicating to us. Communication changes over time, doesn't it? I was thinking this week, as I was thinking about communication, I sort of remember when my family had a telephone. So this would have been in the late 1940s or maybe 1950. And we had a telephone, and it was a party line. Remember those? We had like five families on this same telephone line. And so if there was a call for you, you wouldn't know it was for you and not for somebody else, except that you had your own personal telephone ring. So it would be two shorts and a long or a long and a short. Then you'd know the, the call was for you. And I, I remember our telephone number, Sheffield 6147J. Let me, let me just say, I can remember our telephone number when I was six. As we leave today, I won't remember most of your names. I'm just <laughs> telling you that right now. And, and then it got so you didn't have to deal with the, with the operator directly to place a call because we had rotary dial phones where you could just dial the number directly and then push button phones and then the big gap, cell phones that I still don't know how to use. <laughs> Communication keeps changing. God has communicated to us in the past in a certain way. Ah, but now he says, God is communicating to us through his son. Let's look at these first couple verses of Hebrews. This is Hebrews 1 and 2. It says, so in the past, 
God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. So we're going to look at some of these things about Jesus that make him the perfect communication between God and us. And the first is this, that Jesus, God, he is the creator and sustainer of the universe. Did you catch what it said in Hebrews there? Through whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. Jesus was the instrument of creation. Again, in the book of John, it says, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Everything that exists, exists because of the Son of God who became Jesus Christ. So I think, for me anyway, we talk here at Orchard a little bit about sort of pathways, that you find a pathway that kind of leads you to God. And for me, one of the powerful pathways is just the universe and creation. And I love going out in the summer and at night and looking up at the starry sky. So the more I learn about creation, the more it, I am in awe of God. So, so you can look smaller and smaller and smaller. You remember, so it used to be that we'd look at things that it's, they seemed solid and secure, but we know that they're mostly empty space, right? With these atoms that are joined together into molecules that make the wood or the metal or whatever it is. And that those atoms are made of protons and neutrons and electrons. And it seemed like that's it. We have found the building blocks of the universe. But now we've discovered that there are a whole lot of particles that are even smaller than those. And one that they've just been finding out is the tau neutrino. Tau neutrino. Neutrinos are so small, we cannot see them. We just know they're there because of what they do, how they affect other things. And, and I was reading about this. It says that every second, 60 billion neutrinos pass through every square centimeter of the earth. That means right now, 60 billion neutrinos are going through you and everything else. What, what kind of a being could create a universe like that? Or if we go big, it's sort of at the, at the other extreme. Well, I, th I feel really blessed to live at a time when we not only had the Hubble Space Telescope, but now we have the, the James Webb Space Telescope. And it's beginning to send back pictures uh, for us. So, you know, this telescope now, unlike Earth Telescope, it is stationed a million miles from Earth. And it's able to take pictures, get images farther and farther and clearer than ever before, send those back to Earth. I actually brought along a couple of them. So this was the very first image that the, uh, the Webb Space Telescope sent back. And these are not stars. These are galaxies. And so galaxies like our Milky Way galaxy, they now believe, has about uh, 50 million stars in it. Each of those are a galaxy. And so these are about four and a half billion miles from Earth. So what we're seeing there is not what's there today. It's what was there four and a half billion years ago when it started sending that light out that eventually reached the Webb telescope that was sent to us here on Earth. Amazing. Here's, a, here's another one. Um, I put this in mostly because I just thought it was so cool. These are actually four different galaxies 
So the galaxy of billions and billions of stars and their gravity is kind of pulling them together. And they are, they are traveling at about a million miles an hour being sort of sucked together. Amazing things that are being shown. Let's look at one more just to bring it down a little bit. So this, you probably recognize, this is, Merc this is Jupiter and uh, such a clear picture. And you notice there is, you can see a little bit of the ring around Jupiter. Saturn has rings, but Jupiter does too. And a couple of the, of the moons of Jupiter out this way. What, what an amazing being. So one of the reasons I chose this, because I wanted to, to mention to you, in case you haven't known it, in the evening sky, are you aware um, that uh, Venus and Jupiter are in the evening sky in conjunction now? So if you go out in the early evening, if the night is clear, kind of like that height over there, there'll be two bright stars that aren't stars at all. They are planets, uh, and we get to see them so clearly kind of joining together. What kind of being could make those? Psalm 8 in the Old Testament says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who has set your glory above the heavens. When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? See, that's how it affects me. When I think about Jesus as the creator of the universe, I am able to realize that the Son of God is so great, so big, so majestic, that I can never begin to totally comprehend who he is and what he's like. So one of the things I would encourage you and encourage myself to do is just be aware of God's creation. This is a picture that Elliot Tinson took at Orchard Hill during one of the recent ice storms. How beautiful. I mean, think about this creation just here on earth that God has made. 500 species of butterflies, awesome. But the reality is there are 18,000 species of butterflies in the world. 18,000, 5,000 species of frogs, 45,000 species of spiders. Why? 28,000 species of orchids. What an amazing God to have created all this. So the writer of Hebrews, as he starts out by talking about how God has created, how God has communicated to us through his son, he says, this son that I'm talking about is the agent of creation. All things were made through him and nothing exists that he didn't make. Let's look again at the third verse of this first chapter of, of Hebrews. It says, the son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And then in the book of Colossians that Paul wrote, it says, the Son, he's talking about Jesus, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The Son of God that God has used to, to communicate to us is the creator of the universe, and the Bible says the sustainer of it. The reason it continues to exist is because 
the son wills it to be so, and that there will be a time when God will just close it all up and bring it to an end. The son, Jesus, he's the creator and sustainer of the universe. Second thing, that he is equal with God in everything and enthroned in heaven. Again, looking at, uh, at the third verse, remember what it said? The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his, by his powerful word. And after he had provided purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. This one through whom God is communicating to us is God in every sense. Now, it's really hard, I think, for us to understand how God exists. The Bible seems to indicate to us that God exists. God is one. That's basic. The Lord our God is one. But that he exists in three parts or three persons at the same time who are co-equal. All of them God. So, for instance, when Jesus is being baptized, remember? So here's the Son of God that we've been talking about. Come to earth. He's being baptized. And there's a voice from heaven. Now, if Jesus is God, who, who is this voice in heaven? And the voice is saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And then a moment later, the Holy Spirit comes and descends upon Jesus like a, like a dove. God existing as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Jesus this word of God is totally God. Everything you can say about God, you can say about Jesus. Jesus himself said, you know, I and the Father are one. He said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. I, there's, a, there's an incident in Jesus' ministry that I really like, and I kind of imagine what it's like. So, so while I remind you of this, I want you to just take a deep breath and hold it. Now, Jesus, the Son of God, has become man, and at some point, it's, just, it's like all of this glory that it talked about, this exact representation of the being of God, just going to have to burst out. And he says to some of his friends, come with me. Anybody still holding their breath, by the way? He says, come with me, and they go up on this hill in Israel, and it's just like all of this glory of God just burst out from him like he, like he just couldn't hold it in anymore who he really is as the eternal son of God and it says he you know glows like fire and his clothes are white as snow and he's just this amazing glorious being that's who he actually is he is God and everything that we believe about God we believe about Jesus his son So in some way that is hard to understand, when we talk about God, we're talking about God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's God. Third thing I want us to think about that the writer of Hebrews talks about for Jesus is that he's the only way by which our sins can be forgiven. Again, Hebrews 1.3 says, after he had provided purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Now, this is a little hard to understand, hard for me at least. I have to sort of think it through. So I look out at you, and you look like good people. You know, you dress nicely, you smell good, you're friendly people. Seems like you're a good bunch of people. 
But the Bible says the reality is you are not. That the core of your being, you are a sinner who has rebelled against God, who has broken his, his law every day. The Bible says, when I, when I joined the church in eighth grade, my home pastor, this great guy, wrote this booklet, 101 verses of scripture, and all of us were supposed to memorize all of those. And I wouldn't be able to quote all of them for you today, but I remember how it started. The very first verse was, um, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then the wage of the sin is death. All of us are sinful people and deserving of death. And the more I, more I understand how holy and powerful and majestic the Son of God is, the more I realize how sinful I am. When Isaiah, the Old Testament, had that vision of God in the temple, what's his reaction? He wants to fall down like a dead man. He says, I, woe is me, I'm done for, because I'm a sinful person. My eyes have seen the Lord of glory. The punishment, the consequence of your sinful life is death, physical death and eternal death, separation from God that we call hell. And yet God has provided a way for you to be forgiven. So it might be that I loved you enough, I would say, okay, I'll, I'll take your place on the cross. So you ought to be on the cross dying for your sins. And I would say, I'll, I'll take my, their place. After all, I'm a minister. And so, you know, I get up on the cross and take your place. But, of course, I can't do that, can I? Because I have my own cross. I also am a sinful person. and have to pay the penalty, the price of my sin. So who can possibly do what we can't do for ourselves? Who could pay the price for your sin, who could take the penalty of your sin upon himself? Not just for you and for me, but for all of humanity. And now do you see why it's so important for us to think about the Son of God in these great, glorious, majestic terms? Because it would have to be somebody like that, wouldn't it? Someone who is perfect in every way, glorious, majestic. That being said, I'll take your place. I'll take your cross. I'll take the punishment for your sins upon ourselves. And the Bible says that when Jesus died on the cross, it was not just a physical death. It was that separation from God, his Father, that we ought to be suffering and that Jesus has taken upon himself for us. In the book of Revelation, there's this really interesting, it begins with these pictures of God speaking to some of the churches. And at one point, this is what Jesus says. This is Revelation 3.20. Jesus says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Jesus says, I'll take your place. I'll take your sin upon myself so that you can live and have a relationship with God. So my question for you and the question I need to ask myself is, you know, have I accepted that forgiveness? Have I believed that Jesus, the creator of the universe, became Jesus the man so that he might take my sins on the cross. And if you believe that, how have you responded to it? 
There needs to be a time when we are able to say to God, you know, every, everything that I've done wrong, I confess to you. And I ask that through Jesus, you forgive me and help me to live a life that's worthy of him. Help him to be Lord, not just of creation, but of my life as well. Behold, I stand at the door, the door of your heart, and I'm knocking. Will you let me in? Let's pray. Lord God, we confess to you that we are sinful people. We sure don't deserve your love or your forgiveness. Thank you that the the only way that we could be forgiven through the death of the eternal Son of God has been accomplished for us. And so, Lord, we confess our sins to you. We realize we are sinful people every day. We ask that you would forgive us through the blood of Jesus Christ and that you would help us to live a life that is honoring to you and pleasing to you and according to your will. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.